Hey y'all, welcome back to Well, That's a Problem, a social justice podcast on everyday issues. I'm your host, Abby Naraki, and today I'm thinking about COVID-19. It's been on my mind a lot and constantly, really. As we know, the COVID-19 pandemic disproportionately impacts folks with chronic illnesses and comorbidities, as well as older adults and Black, Indigenous people and people of color. And as of 7-29-2020, we have in the United States 4.46 million confirmed cases since December 2019. And due to limited testing, this is likely to be an underestimate. We are outpacing so many other countries in terms of confirmed cases. And this pandemic really underscores existing issues with our healthcare system in the United States, and it's those issues that I want to discuss with y'all today. And back by popular demand, I am joined by my partner, Kelsey Landice. Kelsey is a professional copywriter and has published fiction and nonfiction on topics like chronic illness and being a Midwestern lesbian. She was most recently on the podcast discussing gender-neutral pronouns and language, so check out that episode if you haven't already. And this episode is being recorded on July 29th, 2020, and by the time you're listening to this, policies and the number of COVID cases may have changed, so be sure to check in with those numbers. And with that, let's get to it. Hey all, I am here with Kelsey and we're talking about healthcare, chronic illness, high-risk categories, and structural oppression. Uh, As folks living with chronic illnesses, these are personal issues for us in many ways. So I wanted to give Kelsey a chance to tell us a little about her own experience with chronic illness to kind of set the tone for this conversation. So hey, Kelsey. Hi, Abby. Thanks for having me on the pod. Happy to be here, here, as always. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about chronic illnesses in general and disclosure. I wanted to say that talking about chronic illness publicly is really tricky because it requires disclosure of highly personal information that would normally only be disclosed in a healthcare setting or to close friends or family. But due to the nature of these issues and the importance of talking about specifics, it's kind of essential that when people with chronic illnesses or disabilities are talking about these, they're kind of by necessity sharing extremely personal stories, extremely sensitive medical information. And so if someone with a chronic illness or disability discloses that information to you, I think it's important to know that they're trusting your discretion not to share that information with others. They don't really owe you any detailed health information. If you see someone who has a visible disability or is taking a medication in public, that's not a prompt for you to ask them about that. That's up to them to disclose to the people who need to know that information. I also wanted to speak sort of as a person with a chronic illness to other people with chronic illnesses that I think it's good and it can be empowering to share these stories, but I think it's also important to be mindful about who you're sharing these stories with and why you're sharing them um, and to always feel like you're not sharing anything you're not comfortable with sharing and that you always feel like you are in control of the narrative. Um, So that was just a little note about disclosure. Um, So that being said, I will disclose at this time for the sake of this podcast that I have several chronic illnesses, including diabetes, um, which has been at the center of this kind of ongoing prominent debate about insurance and drug costs. 
So a little highlight for those who might not be as in the know about these. Um, when Humalog insulin, which is a main insulin that many people with diabetes take, when that was first introduced in 1996, one vial cost $21. In 2019, that exact same vial, same medication, same size, same everything, costs $275. So that is a 1,200% increase in the cost of medication. And that's just one example, but this is happening with every drug for treatment of diabetes and other illnesses. It's just that this um, insulin happens to be a hot button issue, but this is not, oh, it's not just happening with this drug, it's happening with every drug. So this is sort of the background of um, private insurance, healthcare medications in the United States pre-pandemic. Kels, thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. I really appreciate your willingness to be vulnerable and to disclose all of that because I do think it really helps folks understand that this hits home for people and that when we talk about people with chronic illnesses and we talk about people with disabilities like that are in these high risk categories like you're talking about people in your life like normal everyday people exactly um and so I wanted to ask going along with that if you could speak to how the pandemic has affected your healthcare management and decisions yeah, I'd be happy to speak about that. Um, so having diabetes means that in addition to the daily tasks involved with maintaining um, my health and, and managing my illness, I am now in a high-risk category for coronavirus, which adds a very heightened sense of stress to every decision I make, and I think every decision that you make too, really, mm -hmm. of from you know getting takeout to going to the grocery store to... Um, am I going to be able to get the medication I need in a timely manner? Am I going to risk going to the pharmacy today? Are the supplies that I need going to be in stock or not because of panic buying? Um, all of those things sort of highly escalated the amount of stress that I feel. Yeah, well, because I remember like we had a lot of problems finding alcohol swabs for you that you need to like sterilize your medication equipment and other, you know, in your skin and, right. and things like that. And panic buying, like, they all got bought up. Like, you could not go anywhere. Our friend had to buy us a first aid kit, and they had some in there for you right. and things like that. Like, so things that are, you know, simple everyday things for you now become so much harder to manage. And not that it was, you know, easy or fun to manage. When I say it's simple, it doesn't mean that it's Yeah, easy. It's, it's simple in terms of I knew what to expect on a day-to-day -day basis, and now that yeah. kind of is all out the window. Yeah. Definitely. And so, again, I want to thank you for sharing all of that. And I want to kind of break down some and yes, only some of the issues that COVID brings up for folks on, on a bigger scale. So a lot of Kelsey's experiences and, you know, a lot of my experiences as well really underscore some of these larger problems in our society in this pandemic state. So we're going to get into some of those today and, and talk about them. So the first one that we want to talk about is the framing of healthcare as an individual responsibility. And um, the writer A.H. Rome writes uh, an essay in the book Disability Visibility by Alice Wong, a book that we both love and highly recommend that everyone reads. Um, they write that independence is a fairy tale that late capitalism tells in order to shift the responsibility for care and support 
from community and state to individuals and families, but not everyone has the same personal capacity and not everyone has the family support. So what happens in our late capitalist society is that we say, oh, your health is your responsibility. And even if we think that is not the case, capitalism and capitalist structures make it very hard for communities and the state to be held responsible for health disparities in our communities. And the state and corporations then victim blame individuals when they fail to thrive, saying like, oh, it's your fault. You didn't eat the right food. You didn't do the right things. You didn't pay all the money for the meds. But again, not everyone has that same capacity for support or individual care. It's a really huge problem. And the state and corporations just kind of shift the blame every chance they get. Yeah, and I think one example of that can be seen in one big structural barrier, especially to medical care, but in many different venues, is um, the ability to have a remote appointment. So prior to this pandemic, many people said, you know, telehealth is not an appointment. You can't see your doctor virtually. You can't. This has to be an in-person appointment. Um, And that creates a lot of barriers to people with chronic illnesses that require a lot of care, with disabilities that make it difficult to get to these appointments. Um, And almost immediately when the pandemic hit, a lot of those barriers were removed. Suddenly, now that everyone needs those, that is a much more um, common and almost expected. Like with my doctor, they simply are not seeing people in the office now. So I think that's one thing that, you know, this structural barrier that was like a hard stop of like, you cannot see your doctor online. Like, it turns out that is not a barrier at all. Right. So when, you know, folks with disabilities and folks with chronic illnesses were asking for these things, it was a hard no. But now suddenly that the masses need it and, you know, the able-bodied folks and the, the folks with lots of privilege need it. They're like, oh, yes, for safety, for health. Exactly. And we're all like, um, yes, we've been saying that for a while now, please. Right. And right, this makes it seem like huge corporations aren't in charge of so much of this conversation. Let's remember that insurance companies, so just having insurance, get to decide and dictate what gets covered and how much of that that what actually gets covered. So the corporations are absolutely in charge of things in ways that we don't recognize and acknowledge on a daily basis. And that really can disadvantage folks in ways that we aren't talking about enough. And so we're here to have that conversation right now. Yeah, another example of that is um, regarding insulin. Once the pandemic hit again, people are much more open to innovative solutions that haven't been proposed before. So Eli Lilly is a corporation that makes a lot of insulin. They came out and said, during this pandemic, the cost of a vial of insulin is not going to be greater than $25. So it's like, hello, we've been having this battle for years and years over the cost of insulin. And now all of a sudden you're saying this barrier that was a huge cost barrier, this is how much it costs to get a vial of insulin, is just completely arbitrary and set by you, which like everyone knew already. But now you are making blatantly obvious by just unilaterally dictating okay $25 that's it and like that price will inevitably go up again but I think it's important to remember who really holds the power in that situation right and so when people say oh I've been skimping on my insulin I've been skipping doses I've been micro dosing to make my my quantity of insulin last longer 
they're not doing that for fun. They're not doing that because they're incapable of managing their chronic condition. They're doing it because corporations like Eli Lilly make these products inaccessible to folks who desperately need them. Right. So capitalism sucks, y'all. Let's call it out. Yeah, so the other part of that is corporations have a lot of responsibility, but also governments, and especially this pandemic, have a lot of responsibility also, but in many cases have been trying to shift the blame onto you know a pre-existing condition or, or comorbidity. So for example, um, if you look at the state of Iowa's coronavirus website, coronavirus.iowa.gov, um, they have an entire section that's devoted to reporting stats around COVID deaths and pre-existing conditions saying, oh, you know, they died from coronavirus, but also they're diabetic. So maybe it was really their fault for having diabetes without looking at, okay, what was the acute cause of death? This person would not have died from diabetes if they did not also have coronavirus or what caused that pre-existing condition in the first place. Yeah. So again, the way that the government and, and other huge organizations and stuff like that frame this issue allows them to shift the blame to the individual as being the one that is ultimately responsible for their health and their health outcomes regardless of any other factors yep they're just playing that tune over and over again it's a classic hoping it will catch on um, the second thing we want to talk about is obviously racial disparities in healthcare. that is a serious problem that predated the pandemic but has now only been made worse so let's talk about it black patients in the united states are 22 percent less likely than white patients to receive pain medication and that's because of racism i want to be really clear and black women in the united states are three to four times as likely to die during pregnancy and childbirth compared to white women and dorothy roberts who's an awesome scholar over at the university of pennsylvania um, she has a TED talk called The Problem of Race-Based Medicine. It's a really good one, and I really recommend that folks take time to dive into it. But one of the many important insights is that she shares that Black and Latinx patients are twice as likely as white patients to receive no pain medication for long bone injuries, like breaking your femur, because of stereotypes that Black and Latino people feel less pain, exaggerate their pain, and are predisposed to drug addiction. So I really want to emphasize here that these racial disparities in healthcare are not because black and brown bodies feel less pain or are exaggerating their pain or anything like that. It is because of these racist ideas about bodies. We are not different in our experiences of pain, period. Right. Yeah, and all of these racial disparities in healthcare are inevitably replicated when it comes to coronavirus. Um, You know, black people not being believed about their symptoms, like that doesn't automatically stop when it comes to diagnosing someone with coronavirus. There are also racial disparities in terms of risk factors like diabetes, high blood pressure, kidney disease. These are all risk factors that also make someone who has COVID have a worse outcome. And there's also a racial disparity in terms of who's likely to be an essential worker, which means a higher risk for exposure. So all of these sort of risk factors are kind of stacking on top of each other to create this like extreme imbalance in cases of coronavirus. 
Right. And again, these issues aren't individual. They're systemic. And obviously, I'm a sociologist. That's what I love to point out. But that's what the data says as well. And that's why we're here talking about this. It's really important that we understand the way that racism persists in healthcare and how that is affecting people, especially now, but also all the time in the United States, as long as our healthcare system remains as it is. And okay, let's turn it over to indigenous healthcare. Um, there's another essay in Disability Visibility by Jen Deerenwater and talks all about indigenous care um, and chronic illness and healthcare treatments. There's a ton of anti-native racism in the healthcare system. So there is a statistic that natives in Ogallala County, South Dakota, have a life expectancy of 66.8 years, which is the lowest in the United States and is actually lower than countries like Sudan, which has a life expectancy on average of 67.2 years, and Iraq, which has a life expectancy average of 67.7 years. So we can see and remember with things like life expectancy, you want the number to be higher. Higher is good. The fact that native people in the United States have an average life expectancy of around 67 years is really, really bad. And the only healthcare available to native people living on reservations is through the Indian Health Service, IHS. Yes, that is the name. And can we please change that? IHS is consistently rated as the worst healthcare provider in the United States and is horribly underfunded. And if you think prison healthcare is horrific, and trust me, it super is, native healthcare is actually worse in terms of money allocated per person for care. So in 2016, the budget for IHS came out to be approximately $1,300 per person. So each inmate in federal and right, okay, this is federal versus state and there are huge disparities there, but each inmate in the federal prison system was allotted around $7,000 in healthcare per year. There are still huge disparities in prison healthcare. If you want to talk more about that, DM me and we'll just go off. But this is just to highlight the extreme disparities in healthcare that's available for Native folks. There also aren't enough clinics or hospitals to serve reservations and tribal villages. So what this does is this forces Native people to travel extreme distances or often cases just to forgo care altogether. So they're just stuck. And again, this isn't from any fault of Native peoples. It is from abuse and oppression by a system that was never for them. Right. So then again, to like tie this back into coronavirus, obviously this leads again to huge disparities. Um, one problem that Native people face that is a major red flag is that often they're left out of data and reporting by being listed under an other racial category. So of course, statistics reporting varies widely by state. There's lots of issues with coronavirus data in general, but often there's a category of white black, Hispanic, and then other, which would often include just Native people or anyone who does not fall into any one of those other categories. So like if your population is not being reported as a distinct group, obviously that's going to affect funding, that's going to affect care, that's going to affect everything that trickles down from even your numbers being reported. How many Native people have coronavirus? It's impossible to say at this point. 
Um, the other problem is due to sort of the regimes between federal government, state government, local government. So as Abby was just saying, the IHS is run by the federal government. It's a federal government program. That's how Native people on reservations get their care. Um, in this case of COVID, the federal government is refusing to share data with indigenous and native epidemiologists or medical workers leaving tribal organizations to try and forge new partnerships with state and local governments in the middle of a pandemic to obtain information and supplies. So if you can imagine, okay, the shit's hitting the fan and not only are we trying to get medication, supplies, information, all of that, but we are having to make new partnerships, try and forge new relationships in order to do that. You're not going to be set up for success if you don't have an existing infrastructure. Um, in addition to that, of course, there's all the other problems of Native people have much higher rates of pre-existing conditions, including diabetes, heart disease, and lung disease. And right, okay, so tying it all in, this is the system that people are forced into, this healthcare system. And this system makes black and indigenous and people of color pay to access this substandard abusive healthcare in one way or another. And that's just unacceptable. Yes. So yes, now we are on to point number three, which is that insurance is tied to your employment. In the United States, we have private insurance, which means that, okay, if I go into my job, I am risking my health, but if I don't have this job, I lose my health insurance, therefore my health is compromised. I have an example of this, which just so happens to weave in one of my other favorite topics, which is women's basketball. More than happy to go into this topic at any time with whoever wants to, but for the sake of brevity, I'm just gonna give a high level overview of the situation. So um, something that happened last week was that a basketball player for the WNBA named Elena Deladon, who is a very elite basketball player. She was the number two draft pick for the WNBA in 2013. Her team, the Washington Mystics, won the WNBA championship in 2019. She led her team to that victory despite health issues, including chronic Lyme disease. And during that championship series, she was playing with three herniated discs in her bag. So this is a very elite basketball player um, who also happens to have multiple health issues. So due to this chronic Lyme disease, which of course wreaks havoc on your immune system, Deladon applied for a medical waiver for the 2020 WNBA season, which is happening now in the bubble in Florida. It's a mess, but that's a different story. She jumped through all the hoops. She received signed letters from her personal doctor, the team doctor. Everyone recommended her for a medical exemption, saying this is your high risk. You shouldn't be playing. Your immune system's a mess already. The WNBA had an independent panel of doctors who reviewed these requests for medical exemption, and they don't talk to the player. They don't talk to the doctors. They just look at the documentation and they denied her quest for a waiver, which forces her to choose between her health and her paycheck. So either I play and put myself at risk or I lose out on my paycheck. And just for reference, there's a huge pay inequality issue in men's basketball versus women's basketball. So 
the salary cap for the WNBA is $127,500. The highest played NBA player makes $34 million. So it's not like, oh, she'll be fine. She's just, you know, coasting on her millions and millions of dollars from her WNBA salary from previous years. That's not the case. Um, And of course, you know, she still is in a relative position of power. But I think that just goes to show further that even someone who's in a relative position of power with a job and a career that necessitates being very highly attuned with the limitations of your body is not able to make an informed decision about the acceptable level of risk when it comes to coronavirus versus my job versus my paycheck versus my health. So Elena Deladon wrote an open letter about all of this. It's fantastic. We can link to it. You should all read it. The update from a couple days ago is that there's an NBA player named Kyrie Irving who actually started a fund to support WNBA players who opt out of the season for medical or personal reasons. So that's great, love it. But again, this highlights the inequality in pay between the men's and women's leagues. Like this basketball player does the same job as the basketball players that he is like funding out of pocket. Um, And this fund also does nothing. So it's great if you're a WNBA player, but it does nothing for millions of other people who are forced to choose between their health and their employment in other jobs. Right. And again, like this is just to underscore this overriding problem when insurance is tied to employment it puts folks in a really delicate position and this ties really well into our fourth point almost like we planned it that way which is that policy decisions in the pandemic and also more broadly but again we want to just focus in on the pandemic are being made for the non-disabled white masses which undermines the needs of folks in the disability community and the demands of the disability rights activists that have been in the game since the beginning advocating for those most disproportionately impacted by changes in healthcare policy that we've been speaking about. Right. And one thing that I really wanted to highlight in all of this is the importance of, as always in your activism, in your social justice work, um, intersectionality. So I think a lot of times disability is one aspect that is often in an afterthought when you are talking about social justice is accessibility is not something that's always considered or even regularly considered but intersectionality doesn't work that way and I think the something that really drives that home is there's a disability activist and attorney named Talila A. Lewis who has a working definition of ableism which is a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, excellence, and productivity. These constructed ideas are deeply rooted in anti-blackness, eugenics, colonialism, and capitalism. This form of systemic oppression leads to people and society determining who is valuable and worthy based on a person's appearance and or their ability to satisfactorily produce or reproduce, excel, and quote-unquote behave. You do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. So that's the definition of ableism that I think really highlights the way that all of these things are tied together and they're rooted in anti-blackness, eugenics, colonialism, capitalism, all these things work together as forms of oppression. So I think that this quote and this, this working definition of ableism 
really helps capture some of the marginalization that disability advocates have been experiencing since the get-go. Disability advocates have been asking for healthcare reforms since the 1950s, but these interlocking systems of oppression that this definition mentions, like racism and um, eugenic mindsets, this idea that there is a purity to the human race that needs to be filtered out and we need to get rid of folks who are different in order to purify that that race of human beings that's what eugenics is and talks about as well as colonialism and capitalism these all work together to silence marginalize and erase those voices in the narrative and again all of those structures reinforce this idea that it's your responsibility for your health and if you can't work that out then you're worth less to the system and when we talk about you know medicaid and medicare for all or you know single or universal health care we need to really center disabled people and groups who've been organizing around these issues for years and have first-hand experience with these institutions it's not like we don't have people speaking out about this it's that those stories those voices are often marginalized in really systemic ways like this is on purpose this isn't an accident and so we need to do the work to really bring those voices back into the fore really empower ourselves with that knowledge and join the advocacy that they're doing right yeah and one example of that that I just wanted to mention briefly is that this year is the 30th anniversary of the ADA the Americans with Disability Act which was passed in 1990 And there are a lot of issues with this act that's 30 years old, including the fact that buildings built before 1990 are not required to comply with the ADA. They are grandfathered in, which means that only new construction or buildings that have significant renovations are even required to comply with this act that's, again, a 30-year-old piece of legislation. So I think that's just one example of, listen, we're saying there are reforms that can be made right now that policymakers and politicians and people who are organizing around social justice issues need to pay attention to. Another sort of specific issue that I wanted to mention briefly, this is like a whole other episode, but one intersection that I think is really crucial is the intersection between disability rights and environmental justice. Um, this is a situation where disabled people often get overlooked if you're talking about, you know, putting out a mass transit plan or it, banning single rider cars. Like, how is that going to affect disabled people? How is that going to affect people with limited mobility? How is that going to affect older people? Um, another issue where the voices of disabled advocates really got overlooked was the plastic straw ban of like okay yes great idea we don't like plastic straws but if i need a plastic straw for medical reasons for sanity reasons for sterility reasons like at a certain point you had to like move mountains in order to get a plastic straw at a restaurant which affects the ability of disabled people to exist in public um so when you're organizing around environmental justice it's like yes these things are important But you need to think about your whole community when you're thinking about the policies that you're making. Right. And like, this is something I'm very passionate about as someone who studies policy. But policies do have to be this constantly evolving process because we are constantly learning. We are constantly encountering new 
understandings of barriers and how to overcome them. And so, right, the ADA is 30 years old. The ADA is a groundbreaking policy, but the ADA needs adjustments, like tune-ups. You know, you need to go to the doctor every year for a wellness (laughs) visit, whatever. Like, we need to constantly be innovating this process to continually make the world a more accessible place for folks. And when we don't do that, when we overlook the ways that policies are not made with those in mind that would most be disadvantaged by the outcomes of a policy. So if I'm not making, basically, if I'm not making a policy with people of color in mind, with people with disabilities in mind, with indigenous folks in mind, they're going to be hit hardest by the impact of these policies, good or bad. Yeah, and I think that there can be this sort of assumption among progressive folks that, oh, of course there'll be exceptions for disabled people if you're, you know, banning single rider cars or something. Of course, if you're disabled, you can get a straw like, but that is not proven out to be the case. If you don't explicitly include someone who has historically been excluded, then they will continue to be excluded. That was very well said. So much more eloquent than what I was saying. But yes. Um, And so those are the, the four issues that we really wanted to highlight in today's episode. And we're going to do a little musical break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about action items for y'all who want to and need to get more involved in these issues. All right. So here are some action items. We have four of them today to mirror the number of issues that we highlighted in the first part of the episode. The first one that you can do is to invest in mutual aid. This goes back to the idea that communities and states are responsible for health issues. So until the state steps up their game, communities can show up for one another through mutual aid, be that you're donating to your local mutual aid fund or you are donating your time or your services, your skills to be able to help somebody who needs them. Again, in the meantime, as we're continuing to pressure the state to step up their game and attached to that is please pressure the state to step up their game, call your representatives, let them know how you feel about this. And those things need to work in tandem until we've got the justice that we need in our society. And the second one is vote. I want to encourage y'all to vote locally. Local elections are super important for the way that our communities look and engage in issues of disability advocacy. And I also want to encourage y'all to vote in the national election on November 3rd. At Tied to that, there's a lot of misconceptions and voter suppression surrounding voter eligibility for marginalized communities. And for the disability community in Indiana, polling places must have at least one accessible voting machine. And you can designate someone to assist you if you need that. Um, You can also get somebody who is working at the to assist you. However, obviously there's a pandemic going on and a lot of states are having conversations about what is it going to look like to vote long term. Well, 29 states offer no excuse absentee voting and five states actually do all of their elections by mail. And this is a huge thing for making voting more accessible across the board for folks with disabilities, for previously incarcerated folks. Like it makes it so much more accessible for people to vote If they don't have to actually go to the polls on election day, they can get their ballot ahead of time and do all these things. 
However, this is not available in all states. Like I said, this is a total of 34 states that are offering some sort of no excuse absentee voting slash vote by mail. So if you live in Indiana, uh, we do not have no excuse absentee voting. And actually many organizations like the ACLU of Indiana are pushing to get the governor to make that change before it's too late. So check out if your state does have no excuse absentee voting. And what that really means, if anyone doesn't know, is that you can just request a ballot to be sent to your house. You can vote and you can turn it back in. You don't have to give a reason and your reason doesn't have to be on a pre-approved list of valid excuses for why you want that. And if it doesn't, if you don't have that option, you need to call your reps, you need to write the governor and you need to help make it happen. Uh, I also recommend related to this that y'all follow the hashtag CripTheVote. This is for policy conversations around disability and accessibility. Uh, it's a really important hashtag because it really, again, focuses on the right to vote and political activism among the disability community. Sweet. Our last two action items have to do with accessibility. One is something that anyone can do, and that's to ask the question, is my social media accessible? Um, this includes things like image descriptions. If you're posting a photograph, every app has its own way to add an image description that um, people with screen readers can use to experience the photograph even if they can't see it. If I'm making a video or posting a video, is it captioned? So if, I'm, if I can't hear it, I can read the captions. Um, am I relying on extremely text-heavy graphics that would be very difficult to focus on or pay attention to? Um, just making sure that anyone who wants to can access the information or the facts that you're posting. And um, the other point of accessibility is less relevant right now, hopefully, but will be more relevant when it comes to post-pandemic life and the return to real-life events, get large gatherings, is um, make these events and gatherings accessible as well. So do you have an ASL interpreter? Do we have accessible entrances? Are there accessible restrooms? Um, and not only do we have them, but are we promoting them? Are we including that information so that if I have a disability or, or an illness that I don't have to be the one to reach out and ask for that information, I can just see that it's present. That's one way to like lower the bar to accessibility is to just say, hey, this is what's going to be there. Yes, we have ASL. Yes, we have accessible restrooms. Um, just to show that, you know, this is going to be an inclusive event. Yeah, and I think, you know, tied to that, just to add a quick little, my two cents in, is that you always have to be flexible with these things. Like, make sure that you are available and accessible so that if someone does come up to you and say, hey, I actually need this accommodation or thank you for thinking of all these things, but I didn't, I need this, that you're able to be receptive to that and make those changes so that your event can be as accessible as possible and that people don't have to, work so hard to get the accommodations that they need. Right. Love it. You love to see it. Yeah. Tell us any final thoughts for us before we close out. I just want to make one final plug for the book Disability Visibility, edited by Alice Wong. This is a really great book. It has a bunch of essays written by people with disabilities and chronic illnesses about their experiences. And I think that it's 
a really great way that to be introduced to these issues if you don't have a lot of familiarity with disability issues. I think that's a great place to start. There's also a great bibliography um, with further resources. So that's my plug. Yeah, and then you can jump on social media and follow all the authors and follow the account Disvisibility, which is all about the book and the community and those conversations. Do it. Do it. (laughs) All right, that's all we have for this time. Catch you later. Bye. Bye.